essentially a very positive mood. You can think of it as a combination of low-frequency harmonics that are in a consonant relationship. So essentially, it's kind of this um, uh, checkerboard pattern that essentially is constructing you know, these evolutionary selection pressures for thought patterns that will be themselves much more harmonious. Whereas when you're yeah, in a very stressed, you know, anxiety-ridden or, or, or depressed state of consciousness, um, that would be kind of like dissonant configurations of those harmonic waves. Um, and the reason, you know, that would like facilitate essentially, uh, or would be adaptive, is that then like it provides evolutionary selection pressures for particular patterns that are like more asymmetrical, more jagged, more sheared, more pinchy. And yeah, I mean, if you think about like, okay, what... <laughs> What is the sort of like sensations that you have when you are like upset or something like that? You will yeah notice there's like a lot more kind of like angular shapes and and sharp objects and things like that as opposed to yeah like you know very very blissful state of consciousness where things are in some you know metaphorical sense much more round and and coherent with one another. The scientific revolution starts now. Can you explain that uh, that quadrant system you have for talking about the, these states of consciousness? Because you have this very simple way of not to not to at all deride it. It's very, it's quite fascinating. But you have a, a fairly simple way of looking at the emotional landscape in this Cartesian map. We'll we'll throw it up on the podcast later. Uh, we'll edit it in. But can you can you explain that to people so that they describe it, yeah describe it yeah. There might be a couple things you're referencing to. Uh, there's one Cartesian plane, which is valence and arousal. Mm, and that's, that's what I'm uh, thinking kind of. Of like, okay, okay, yeah, very classic, uh, you know, affective psychology construct, um, which is derived from, uh, you know, empirically. Actually, what you can do is um, ask people to kind of like rate their experiences over time. And if you do a principal component analysis on that type of data, um, usually two factors emerge or two principal components one is arousal, essentially, you know, the level of activation, how much energy. This is the hot sauce. That is the hot sauce, yeah, yeah. Or one of the key effects of the hot sauce. And then you have the uh, valence, which is how good or bad the experience feels. And, you know, there's a lot of research on uh, arousal. Uh, and, like, for example, you can use your Apple Watch to kind of, like, estimate your level of arousal. The thing that is a lot less researched is the valence component and actually what constitutes valence. And I think what, what makes uh, QRI special is that we have a theory of valence. And the theory of valence is actually pretty exotic in a way. <laughs> because, I mean, if you ask a neuroscientist, like, what, you know, what is pleasure? You will usually get one of the following responses. You know, you will say, hear something like, um, you know, it's like when dopamine gets activated in your pleasure centers or something like that. Or it has something to do with opioids or serotonin. There's kind of that class of explanations. There's also kind of like functional localization. It's kind of like, oh, like reduced amygdala activity. Or yeah, like this nucleus changes the way that it behaves relative to this nucleus. Exactly. But, but just because you call something a pleasure center doesn't mean you have an explanation, right? So, um, do, you, do you know the work of Michael Levin? Yes, yes. This is, and this seems structurally similar to the work of Michael Levin, where he's like... From a philosophical standpoint, you can't just look at the molecular bumpings up of things in biology and be like, well, that's the explanation. There's some kind of larger behavior that forms the action that you see, and you can only understand it through this interrelationship of forms. And it seems like you're doing this for, for, uh, for valence. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, the the most preferred explanation uh, for a lot of people is kind of a algorithmic explanation. This idea of um, pleasure is reinforcement. We're kind of a, we're all reinforcement learning algorithms instantiated in wetware, and um, what's pleasant is whatever is reinforcing. But you know, that's actually empirically not the case. There's like a lot of things that are really pleasant but are not reinforcing, and vice versa. Um, but yeah, I mean, at, at QRI, our, our theory is actually the thing that makes the experience pleasant or not is the structure of the experience. <clears throat> and uh, the more symmetrical the structure, the more pleasant it is. What what is this? Yeah, what do you mean by structure of an experience? Sorry. <laughs> I totally get this exact question. You mean, like the, you mean the way that you parameter, like the parameterization of it, or do you mean the electrical signal itself as viewed as... Like the waves themselves of ele- of electricity through the brain, or like what I what I when I when you say structure, the thing that comes to mind for me, and I, I want to see how close this gets, is that I imagine that in this kind of uh, pleasure, in this in this positive state, you have some kind of increase in permittance where waves are able to move through the brain in some way, in an easier way. Either you open ion channels and like the flow of water is easier or salt moves faster. I don't know. I, I just like, I see a physical object that's somehow responding. Oh, absolutely. No, that's, that's roughly the, <laughs> that, that is the vibe. So, <laughs> okay, so, good. Absolutely. So, so, uh, one property of experience, for example, is the viscosity of experience. Essentially, it's kind of like what is the kind of like statistical level of effort and resistance that is inside you. And oftentimes that is highly correlated with like the presence of like internal conflicts or, you know, in- internal inconsistencies. You can have a very viscous experience. Yeah, that would be an unpleasant experience for the most part. Whereas if you look at like high-end equanimity practices, people literally say, you know, their experience becomes um, completely fluid. Like there's no resistance in their experience. And when the resistance drops to zero, the suffering drops to zero as well. And uh, I mean, at QRI, we actually, you know, we are physicalists. We actually think that states of, you know, consciousness and uh, physics are actually the same thing at a very deep level. So that, yeah, I mean, like a lot of the properties of your experience will ultimately be captured by, yeah, physical constants. You know, like what is the degree of, you know, resistance or you were mentioning permittivity or or things like, um, viscosity um a very very important concept is a uh, is of a uh, impedance matching uh maybe a little bit of a background for that is like if you play a um you know a guitar string uh completely unconnected you know kind of disembodied in the air it's going to sound really really quiet but um if you you know attach it to a acoustic guitar all of a sudden it's actually going to be really loud right and like that's very puzzling because like how how come like attaching something will make the string louder and like it sounds kind of like energy came out of the blue, but actually what is going on is that the energy is the same. It's just that it's being discharged a lot faster because the string is going to make vibrate the entire guitar, and so actually the sound of a guitar is the sound of the guitar vibrating, not the guitar the sound of the string vibrating. So basically that is called a impedance matching. You're kind of providing these intermediate medium between something that is vibrating at a very high frequency so that it can actually spread its energy to the environment. So impedance matching is something we've uh, we've looked at in you know as an explanatory framework and it, it seems to uh, explain quite a bit in for example psychedelic states of consciousness as well as like meditation that like a key aspect of uh, internal harmonization is actually increasing impedance uh, matching so that you can act, 
the frequencies essentially can become uh, becoming sync with one another. Are you aware of anybody who's done any biophysical work about this idea of like decreased, like who's actually able to measure these these qualitative feelings? Like, are you guys partnering with anybody who's done that, or is there some like programs that like is there somebody with electrodes on their head sitting somewhere? Yeah, or who is able to actually yeah measure? You know, I, I know you talk about um like this symmetry idea, these this brainwave symmetry. Are people measuring that? Or maybe you can say a little bit about that idea. Yeah, yeah. So maybe it would be helpful to explain that at QRI we do three things. So, well, really there's like kind of like three, um, you know, levels of abstraction that we care about. And then there's like three objectives. So it ends up being kind of like a three by three matrix. But uh, I mean, the, the layers are essentially we do philosophy, uh, straight up philosophy of mind, um, you know, like actually, you know, engaging with philosophers of mind, uh, you know, people like David Chalmers or, or Daniel Dennett, you know, actually kind of like working at that level is something that we do. Then we also do neuroscience. So like one of the key paradigms that we look at is this one, it's called connectome-specific harmonic wave uh, analysis that essentially interprets the behavior, the activity of brain as a super, superposition of resonant modes. And there's like a, a lot of fascinating work in that area. Um, the idea came up uh, or like was invented by uh, this researcher called Selena Tassoy. Uh, who did a bunch of work on that on Oxford, you know, uh, on LSD and, and other psychedelics uh, and anesthetics. Um, but the idea of uh, harmonic resonance in the brain is like somewhat older. Like there's people like uh, Stephen Lehar, um, like a, a, a pretty amazing like psychonaut and, and cognitive scientist who wrote about harmonic resonance in the brain. Um, so we at TRI, we have kind of like an internal um, somewhat of a fork of like the selen atasoy paradigm of connecting specific harmonic waves. Uh, essentially, we're like doing something very similar, except we think we're like fixing a couple mistakes. Uh, but I mean, essentially, it's like roughly the same idea. Um, and yeah, the data says that we are really interested in that we, you know, we analyze our things like um, peak meditation experiences. And, you know, if all goes right, we will be able to analyze MDMA data as well. Not, not that we collected, but like another lab collected and uh, we're very likely to collaborate with them. And what are you, are you seeing more resonant behaviors in some of these more valent states? The, the main effect, at least with this technique, is um, higher energy across the, the, across the spectrum. So essentially, um, across all frequencies, the amplitude gets higher. Um, so it's kind of like, yeah, if, you're, you know, if your brain has all of these resonant modes, um, essentially on LSD, um, you essentially have like more energy in all of those harmonics. So you're kind of like in an energized state of consciousness, but especially so for like the high frequency harmonics. And um, they, they confirmed that this is the case with LSD and DMT and ketamine. Um, whereas with a propofol or like anesthetics is actually the opposite. You essentially get like a, a broad, you know, broad spectrum reduction of the amplitude of the harmonics and especially so in the high frequencies. Um, so that is like a, a pretty robust pattern, uh, as to like, you know, whether, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, are there theories about those different frequencies and their role and behavior? Like, are people speculating about what high frequency resonant modes are contributing to in terms of behavior? Do people try to, yeah, do they correlate them with different behaviors or, or is this like, it's very difficult to get people to behave different ways and. Well, no, there, there's a couple of things I can say. So 
uh, some spe- so some specific frequencies um, essentially are much more loaded in specific parts of the brain. So, for example, like around like ten hertz or so, like those frequencies are like very very heavily tuned to the visual cortex. So, there's kind of like some way of like okay, like you can tune into different parts of the brain by dialing different frequencies in a way. But this is not going to be perfect. I mean, it's not like okay, each specific part of the brain actually has like an address or something like that because the resonance is still a holistic effect it's still like the entire brain resonating it's just that there's more of a loading in a particular component of it um but then uh my co-founder uh mike johnson um has speculated quite a lot about yeah the, the role of like various yeah various frequencies and i mean to a first approximation um we would have like the very low frequencies um, I mean, it's similar to sound, like the very low frequencies are kind of like waves of energy that, you know, go through, through walls and across corners. And so in, in a, um, in a very straightforward way, they would be very well suited for carrying, uh, the priors of, of, um, your, your, essentially your statistical priors, meaning like your expectations, whereas the high frequencies uh, are much more localized, right? Like high frequency sound, you know, you, you close the door, <laughs> um, in, in a party and like you will hear the low frequencies but not the high frequencies so the high frequencies tend to be much more localized and they would be much more likely to actually carry the semantic content like the the, the actual you know details of the of the of the information um, and the low frequencies too what we speculate on and we're trying to test is they would carry more of the uh, mood component so essentially a very positive mood you can think of it as a combination of low frequency harmonics that are in a consonant relationship. So essentially it's kind of this um, uh, checkerboard pattern that essentially is constructing, you know, these evolutionary selection pressures for thought patterns that will be themselves much more harmonious. Whereas when you're in a very stressed, you know, anxiety ridden or, or, or depressed state of consciousness, um, that would be kind of like dissonant configurations of those harmonic waves. Um, and the reason, you know, that would like facilitate essentially, uh, or would be adaptive is that then like it provides evolutionary selection pressures for particular patterns that are like more asymmetrical, more jagged, more sheared, more pinchy. And yeah, I mean, if you think about like, okay, what, <laughs> what is the sort of like sensations that you have when you are like upset or something like that, you will yeah notice there's like a lot more kind of like angular shapes and, <laughs> and sharp objects and things like that, as opposed to, yeah, like, you know, very, very blissful state of consciousness where things are in some, you know, metaphorical sense, much more round and, and coherent with one another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, I, I, I might not have caught this, but you said that there were three different paths and you said the philosophy of mind was one, neuroscience was the other. And then did we, did we get to the third one? No, no, we didn't. We didn't. Thank you. Uh, it's um, neurotechnology. So yeah, yeah. And like the thing that we are interested in is no, especially non-invasive. Um, so the way we we have you know studied this space is by combining. Um, I'm just wondering. Yeah, by combining light, sound, and body vibration, we call it a LSV stimulation, um, and uh, it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, like uh, listening to a song that you really like compared to listening to that song together with body vibration that is in synchrony with the song that is kind of rendering the song in, in a, in a different channel 
it adds to something like 60% enjoyment or something. Is that like, like hooking a speaker up to your body, basically? How do you do that? Or like going to a concert, like having them play oh, it really to the loud? Concert. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that, at least prior exactly. to the last two years, that's probably why. That, that's exactly one way, like um, to get really close to a very giant speaker, you know, put like earplugs so that you, <laughs> you don't go that for. I mean, that's uh, why people love concerts, right? Because objectively, if you, if you were to sit down and you were to be like, look, which versions of this song is the most accurate representation of the song? It's probably the album version. But people still love to go sure. to concerts and they love to stand in front of the speakers and be vibrant because it is exactly like basically hooking yourself up to a speaker, like you said. Yeah, it's the yes. same with like playing music or something too. Like it's it's fun to just play acoustic guitars and stuff, but like to really just like plug into something loud and play with a drummer and just like really like feel it in your body. That's really yeah, it's like really it, fascinating. Live music doesn't catch until there's a drummer. Like I don't know if you've ever seen somebody on stage playing a guitar. It's like, it's nice. It sounds pretty. Even if it's, you know, something that's like very, very ornate and truly excellent, there's a different level that you get to if there's percussion, if there's something that's grabbing you as it happens. I think you're totally right. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it definitely makes sense. Yeah. Within a kind of our, our valence paradigm. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The vibration, the way we do it is with, um, I mean, first of all, we, we experiment a lot with um, a commercial product called the Stub Pack. Um, and I highly recommend actually getting one. Like it's like three hundred dollars or something like that. It's amazing. Like you essentially you plug it in uh, to, to the music, and it's going to render all of the frequencies between zero and or between like ten and two hundred hertz into like body vibration. Um, so like if you so like some songs like play way better uh, in it than others um, if they have kind of like a very heavy bass component, and especially if the bass component is you know, compatible with your body. And like, it, there, there's some, some, some things that sound really good, but don't feel good and vice versa. Um, there's some, some songs that sound good and feel amazing. So the, like you can, um, I can, <laughs> I can, I can give an example of a song like that, uh, uh, in the link or something like that. Um, but afterwards we actually, uh, created custom hardware for it. And like we created like these, um, um, big pillows, <laughs> uh, with transducers inside that essentially, yeah, you can you can make vibrate in in all sorts of ways and create this amazing, um, essentially similar to auditory illusions or visual illusions. You can make tactile illusions with this sort of setup. You can make kind of um, activate various. So if you have like a pillow in your head, a pillow in your in your chest, and a pillow in your legs, you can make each of the pillows activate at a time, and it creates the illusion of kind of like a rolling wave that goes through your body. So. Even though it's discrete, it actually feels much more continuous. Um, and yeah, I mean, the full setup is actually like one pillow in the head, one pillow in the uh, in the legs, uh, two sub packs, then a stroboscopic simulation and high quality audio, and all of that put together, and then creating custom um, custom songs specifically for that setup. Um, and the effect is really strong. I mean, like we've had people say that. Um, they were able to process a very difficult traumatic memory in like a span of like 15 minutes in a way that is like similar to, for example, uh, like a ketamine trip or something like that. What's up with that? Like what are people just like, are they, are you, is this like a theory of blockage or something? Like what's the psychology behind that? Just <laughs> that like the tension that's in our bodies and in our electrical and uh, tactic, haptic uh, resonance is just 
like literally causing resistance in being able to are we not relaxed enough to be able to process bad things like what is that what's going on all of that all of those are some excellent excellent guesses and so here's what uh, what i have i mean there's so much more to, to say but like you know the first approximation um yes like there's this issue of impedance matching so like you can have like a essentially like an anxiety or like a worry really or like a trauma like stuck in your body in a way that self-reinforces that doesn't dissipate its stress to the rest of the nervous system so essentially something that is kind of like an echo chamber and like nothing can really undo it it's sometimes it's actually worse like when you try to undo it you're actually energizing it and reinforcing it which is why yeah i mean i think like a lot of the times actually just like talking about something traumatic can make it worse because you're just relieving the memory without like having kind of a, you know, a high valence, you know, pillow to kind of cushion it and, and, and prevent it from like self-reinforcing. But yeah, if you explore a traumatic memory on MDMA or on ketamine or on kind of the LSB setup, um, essentially in each of those experiences, one of the key things that happens is that you have kind of a, a new medium of wave propagation gets activated in your nervous system, or that's that's what it feels like. So, whereas before, kind of like your waves of attention maybe met kind of like a, had a blockage or like we're not able to kind of go all the way all the way through. In this new medium, you know, on ketamine it might feel like you know your nervous system became gelatin or something like that. Yeah, like the the vibrations will go through the entire body in that alternative medium that is not your normal medium. Well, the medium is still the same, but the, you've you've added something to it, right? Like the medium of gelatin is still water, but you've just happened to add you've you've added this like structure that like vibrates within it. And so I imagine that what you're so we we spend a lot of time thinking about these kind of biomechanical understandings yeah. of things like quantum physics. And so here it seems like what it is is that the interaction between the ketamine molecules and the chemistry of your body is creating a structure that has different material properties, if you will. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I wanted to just add too, by the way, in case people are like listening to this, like what, <laughs> like, like what, are these people like, talking what about? is this is like legit stuff with the depression cures. Like there's some crazy studies coming out of like these hard hitting universities about the, especially with psilocybin. I've seen a lot of these lately. Also the ketamine I saw too, with regard to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, soldiers coming back. I've been listening. I've heard a number of story, stories from soldiers about their experiences with this stuff. Like, it works for sure. So, you know, we're sitting around here trying to speculate as to why it works, but there seems to be almost no question at this point that it is useful in actually breaking through some of these psychological, uh, I don't exactly. even know what you call them, scar, scar psychological scar tissue. And I will say in a way that's way more useful at breaking that scar tissue than the current treatment modalities. Because if you go and you have some kind of trauma or you have something that's broken the way that your your system vibrates, you go to a doctor and they're basically like, well, we can give you this pill and you're going to take it for the rest of your life. But it seems like these sorts of transformative experiences actually allow you to work something out, which changes you persistently as opposed to something that is you know it's like healing versus uh just just tramping it down or yeah. something like that yeah yeah exactly um i mean in our in our theory um ssris work primarily by adding noise and so, <laughs> so essentially there's kind of like three components to valence in our theory we have a consonant which feels good 
we have dissonance, which feels bad, and then we have noise. And noise uh, is kind of like this broad spectrum, uh, feels neutral. It's neither good nor bad. So like, for example, if you're like right next to a construction site and you put a white noise machine, it actually sounds better, right? Because it's kind of like muffling or is uh, diluting, you know, blunting the, the, the harsh sounds of construction machinery. If you're at a, you know, symphony, um, or like at a, at a concert, actually adding white noise uh, will dilute the positivity of the experience. Um, so a lot of people report kind of like blunting across the board on SSRIs, right? It's not only that their depression is blunted, they also say their happiness is blunted, their orgasms are blunted, their, their happiness is blunted. Um, and uh, we essentially suspect that it's kind of a flattening the uh, acoustics of the brain, essentially making it less resonant and more noisy, um, which, yeah, it's kind of like crystallizing the state in which you are um, and blunting it, but it's not actually allowing you to really heal. And, and that is kind of like, yeah, a big concern. Is there, bi is there biophysical evidence for that? Or is it purely based on math? No, th this would be based on essentially kind of a consilience of a lot of hints. Um, I do think like it can be proven ultimately. Uh, Shyla's throwing down the gauntlet here. Right. Yeah, right now it's uh, <laughs> more hyper. I'm just trying to I'm trying to understand where we're at with it, like in terms of uh, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense. I'm just curious if there's been attempts to measure that or like how how you unpack. Obviously, you hook up electrodes to the brain. You don't just see these nice little peaks everywhere. Like it's it's uh, you have to transform it somehow to get the different frequency components. And I just I don't know. I obviously yeah, don't study this stuff, so... Would you expect to see this in brainwaves? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to... To, to some extent, yeah. I mean, you might... Ex so, it is the case that you find um, uh, less broad-scale synchronization in the brain with SSRI. And that would essentially feed into this theory, although there's many other, you know, things that might cause that. So, that's why I think it's like kind of like just one hint as opposed to like something that is like testing that specifically. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, but I think that your question is broader than just the SSRI example or you were specific to the SSRIs? No, I was just asking about all of this, like what sort of uh, preliminary studies were showing the, yeah, like what kind of frequency analysis was being done or... Because the SSRI theory makes a lot of sense intuitively from what I've, I've seen from people. So I think that the next question is, is like, well, where, where is the, where would this be seen? Yeah. Is yeah. that kind of where you're going? Yeah. Like what, like how would you see this in the brain? If you wanted to look at it and say, aha, it's because the actual electrical signals are in resonance in this state and they're chaotic in this other state. Like I know the transcranial mag, have yeah. you played with transcranial magnetic stimulation at all? We we actually have um, briefly. I mean, we had access to a lab that uh, allowed us to play with it. Um, there's something interesting to say about it, which is that usually TMS is thought of as okay. How do we zap the brain to inhibit this part or excite this part? Uh, the TMS that we had access to was, in some sense, uh, you know, uh, well, I guess like the the entire software and hardware was like fixed in that paradigm. Um, but actually, what I find much more interesting is continuous waveforms. So let's say like a sinusoidal waveform introduced by a TMS. The reason why that is not done and why instead like people zap your brain is that if you use a continuous waveform, it actually makes it very likely for your brain to start uh, seizing, like experience a seizure. 
Because that's the because that, exactly. that's what a seizure does. Isn't that what a seizure does? Isn't that what yeah, like seizures are like states? Yeah, essentially very high energy states of resonance. <laughs> where um, yeah, I mean it's like a repeating pattern that is self reinforcing uh, until it exhausts its energy. Um, but yeah, with a TMS, it can induce a seizure. Now it sounds like more dangerous like, technology than I realized. It sounded so benign. Right. <laughs> well, the, the thing is that I think it's actually good news. Like if TMS can induce a seizure, it actually means it's interfacing with the language of the brain, which ultimately I think it's, yeah, you know, electromagnetic resonance. Um, the trick is actually not, you know, using zapping. I think like the trick is going to be how do you use um, a low enough amplitude that you still get the potentially beneficial effects, but without the seizure actually happening. So, but are the waveforms that you're talking about? So, if you have a mathematically constructed waveform that you associate with a certain feel, if with a certain experience or a certain feeling or a certain valence, are those words interchangeable? Like uh, feeling and valence. Yeah, no, they're they're not. So, valence is a very broad category. Um, here's the reason why. So. <clears throat> there are things that have valence that I think definitely don't have a feeling in a way, um, at least not in a classic sense. I mean, like if we talk about like feelings as like, you know, feeling happy, sad, you know, upset, usually that has kind of like a, a bodily element and, you know, some, some, something having to do with a bodily prediction errors that I, I could get into, but essentially, yeah, it's kind of like an embodied feeling. Now, if you take LSD and you look at a, you know, piece of grass or something like that, um, it's very likely that it will start to symmetrify or like tessellate. You will kind of like the entire field may become kind of this symmetrical structure. Now that has a positive valence. Like there's something that feels good about it, but it's not a feeling in any traditional sense. It's kind of like you activated the ability for the visual cortex to generate pleasure and pain, but it's just a very exotic variant of it. So that's why I would say like that is valence. And I also talk about like exotic valence. Like valence appears in like very strange places, especially in other states of consciousness. Whereas I, I guess I tend to use the word feeling as much more of a classic, you know, embodied Darwinian emotions that we are acquainted with. Hmm. So is it kind of synesthesia in some way? Because the example that you use of the blade of grass, which normally wouldn't tessellate, and then you begin to see it f form shapes the it, it's there is kind of a prismatic quality of the scene as you're already looking at it when you're sober right and so it seems like what's happening is that the thing that you already see is basically beginning to behave in some way and yeah. so valence is i'm sure like is there some kind of other word that is synonymous to valence that is not valence is it okay, like the closest would be um, well-being, perhaps, like the presence or absence of well-being. Hmm. Yeah, I could, I can imagine it with music for sure. Like, I, I don't uh, have a ton of experience with LSD, but the music is like sometimes it can be very sad music, but still make you feel something that's very good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so yeah. I could see feeling being on a different uh, axis. 
Uh, but we were talking about what, what I was saying is I was like, if you could take a certain pattern that produces a given valence and then use that waveform that you have predictively constructed and apply it to somebody's brain, would they feel that thing? Mm. I would I would imagine yes. I mean, if you do it at a high enough resolution, uh, there's one, I guess, like wrinkle or caveat here, which is that the precise shape of a person's brain actually determines what are the resonant modes of that brain in a very similar way to like, you know, why different, uh, differently shaped objects sound different. Yeah, because it's the entire object that is vibrating, right? Like the sound that an object emits is a result of the entire shape, right? It's actually one of these cases where in some sense, the, um, the whole is more than the sum of the parts because all of the parts interact to produce this holistic behavior. And in the case of valence, it's, it's very much like that. Um, but that also means that there's like some patterns of stimulation, uh, or even like, let's say transcranial magnetic stimulation getting internally that will resonate with one brain, but may not resonate with another brain because they're shaped differently. So do you imagine people will have to have their, like if, if they want to use this technology to put themselves in these frames of mind, to induce themselves into these frames of mind where they have to develop their own program essentially ahead of time through these, I don't, <laughs> yeah, through meditation or music or psychedelics. Or, like where they can actually find the model like of the well-being yeah. state. Oh. Like this is it. Take a picture here and then let's get back to this, you know, through the technology yeah. later. The, essentially, we think of that as a calibration stage. Yeah. Um, and uh, in the experiments that we have run with the light, sound, and body vibration, we do see interpersonal variability. Like, for example, uh, for one person, we may need to kind of uh, do a frequency shift, uh, like add like five, you know, shift everything five hertz uh, so that it actually resonates, let's say, with their heart chakra. Yeah, talking in a very, very cheapy way. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, like these sort of things, like, yeah, it's, it's very puzzling. It's like, okay, these frequencies, like, they feel great for somebody, but for you, you need a tiny adjustment. Um, I don't think it's intractable. I mean, I think it's kind of like something you can do over five minutes with a with a proper protocol. It's funny you mentioned like the chakras. We uh, we we teach anatomy at a, anatomy and physiology at a at a university remotely, and it was so funny because we were teaching like the 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 central nervous system, but basically the lay the topology of the nervous system. And we were like looking at just, you know, the different root nerves and stuff. And we're like, you know what? Like this is, this is basically the same idea as chakras, you know, it's, it's not that far off. I just think it's quite interesting how these ideas. Well, because the third, the vertebra are divided according to areas of the body that they innervate. And so you can actually, there's a map of the body that you can get and you can Doesn't just like Google, like, Desmoderm, yeah, it? I think they're called Desmo. No, <laughs> no, Desmoderm is a laser spot. Don't I'll go to Desmoderm. Uh, it's basically like a map of where the sensations on the body align to, and it's exactly this thing where there is actually a physical structure that appears to be uniquely connected to various parts of the body, and because it is a physical structure, you would expect it to have resonance because it's not a chaotic structure it's quite ordered there's you know crystalline bones within it muscles that are perfect the, the crystalline structure of muscles is incredible of collagen it's all of these things that are very ordered so why wouldn't it have a resonance the same way that you know any other object does yeah yeah 
I mean, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that a very big chunk of people's ill-being, in a sense, uh, or low valence comes from like, you know, poorly calibrated uh, nerve bundles that are, in a sense, like seizing or having like unpleasant dissonances and sending that to the brain. Whereas, yeah, I mean, if kind of like embodied meditations that like focus on tuning the, the chakras and so on, yeah, I very much think actually what they're doing is making the oscillations in those nerve bundles more consonant through a process of annealing. Um, essentially, you energize it and you cool it and you energize it and you cool it. And over time, essentially, it achieves, yeah, the lowest energy configuration, which is like the most consonant and symmetrical. Those are called dermatomes in Western medicine. <laughs> So, so Western medicine's got them too. They just call them something else. But it's basically the, the parts of your body that are controlled by different parts of the spinal column or the spinal cord at that, that area and the root nerves associated with it. So, Far out. How long is the plan? Oh, which thing? So if you put somebody in this LSV system and you bring them to the state of bliss and you allow them to experience it and they process something, are they do, do you do follow-ups with them? Uh, you know, a, a month out, a, a year out, whatever? We, so to give you a sense of the scale, uh, we've had like probably about like 100 or 150 people go through the system. A few people, you know, spontaneously said like, yeah, you know, I processed a very deep trauma. And with those people, we did follow up. And like, it, they seemed to actually say like, it continues to be valuable afterwards. In terms of, well, and I think like that's because a very deep transformation happened in that stage. And like, I mean, if you if you know somebody who, for example, crosses something on MDMA or, or ketamine, yeah, like usually it sticks. I mean, like you did a, a deep transformation. Uh, and also think that's what the research is showing nowadays. I, I'm not sure if there's like any published study on MDMA specifically about that, but yeah, basically, you know, psilocybin or LSD uh, for depression. Yeah, you see like these lingering effects the last months, uh, essentially. Um, in terms of like, Things that are not as enduring, the system does put you in a pretty different state for approximately like two hours, I would say. So like if you go to a party and like you participate in, in that, essentially people say like, yeah, for the rest of the party, I felt like much better or like more aligned, felt more empathetic, kind of like effects of that sort uh, or reduced anxiety. Um, but that does go away after like several hours. Interesting. Okay. So, I mean, that, and that, that makes sense because it's being used in this different way. I think people who process trauma or people that are so analytic about themselves have some kind of protocol that they've worked out for them that allows them to open a door that other people might not need or might not have or whatever, right? Because it's like somebody who's on the mission of figuring out traumas would understandably experience an experience like this in a completely different way than somebody who's like, no, I don't really process trauma. <laughs> it would be weird if they came out as somebody who processed trauma on the other side of the experience. Yes. Um, I, go ahead. I have. I, I want to I change direction, so go ahead. Yeah, that's all right. I want to get around to sort of like the technological ends goals of some of this stuff eventually, but if we can get to there in a minute. Well, so I, I, and I, I think that's reducing unnecessary suffering. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm happy to go into that. So, <laughs> so essentially I mentioned, okay, we do three things, which is uh, philosophy of mind, uh, actual neuroscience, and then neurotechnology. So those would be kind of like the <laughs> the various um, lay or like yeah the various levels of the stack levels of abstraction you know philosophy is very abstract but neurotechnology is like okay super concrete we're actually doing it here um, but then we have like three missions broadly speaking which is 
we call them the, the various pillars of QRI. So the first pillar is reduce or hopefully eliminate intense suffering. The second one is increase the baseline. And the third one is achieve new heights, essentially explore ultra blissful states of consciousness. Um, why these things? Well, the reason is we did a bunch of research on what are the, how to interpret the scales of pain and pleasure. And essentially we arrived at the conclusion that when people talk about like their pain, you know, being in a zero to 10 scale, um, that's actually a logarithmic compression of something that is exponential. In other words, um, which each increment in the scale, you really should be multiplying the pain by a constant as opposed to adding a constant. And, you know, that explains why, you know, when you get to kind of like nine out of 10 pain or 10 out of 10 pain, it's actually like unimaginably horrible. Like it really is like, you know, and in human level, it's actually impossible to you know, imagine how bad it is. Um, and it turns out that, you know, if you do kind of a utilitarian calculus here, uh, if you kind of like count or try to quantify suffering in the world with this uh, framework, it turns out that, yeah, something like 80% of the world's suffering is concentrated in just a few really bad experiences that people have. So, you know, like after we, we realized that, we thought like, well, actually, there, there seems to be a, a humanitarian um, uh, possible humanitarian emergency here that people are not realizing. Sorry, go ahead. You 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 gave a statistic, which is that eighty percent of the world's suffering is localized to sm to few experiences. Can you say more about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, just to give you an example, like, uh, sorry, like we are valence realists. So, like, we we actually believe that you know there is such a thing as like how good or bad you're feeling, and that there's like an objective score to it. I mean, most experiences are mixed, but roughly speaking, you can take the bad part of your experience, but take the good part and subtract the bad part and that gives you approximately how good you're feeling. Um, because you could if you have a very mixed experience, as long as the pain and the pleasure are balanced, you actually might judge that to be kind of a, a neutral experience. Um, if you kind of like try to give a number to this on the scale, you know, we arrive at numbers like uh, attention headache, you know, like the typical headache, you know, hangover headache or something like that. Um, you know, the, the number that we may give to it is something like, okay, you experience like a hundred, what do we call dollars per second? D-O-L-O-R-E-S. It's essentially like my pain units. Yeah, pain units. Exactly. Something like a hundred pain units per second. Well, uh, triangulating through like a chain of painful experiences, people who've had like multiple painful experiences of different kinds, we can arrive at the approximate number that a migraine is uh, between 100 and 1,000 times more painful than a typical headache. And then if you look at the uh, even worst uh, conditions like uh, cluster headaches, um, which happen in one in 1,000 people, um, they're approximately uh, 1,000 times more painful than a migraine. So, you know, we're talking like really stratospheric levels of suffering to, to such an extent. And you quant and you're able to quantify this because you you follow the same person and it, it, this unit is like like dollar like pain. Yeah, D O L O R S dollars per second. Yeah. Okay. So dollar like like uh, dolorum or like yeah. dolor. Yeah. Okay. So it's like sadness and pain, like negativity. Yes. Um, negativity. Yeah. So how do you? I I guess I'm just still trying to think of it because. 
do you have the same person report to you the scale for them of tension, migraine versus cluster, and that's how you evaluate the the realm? Yeah. I see. Yeah, yeah. The the article, the main article here, um, I would recommend checking out is called Logarithmic Scales of Pleasure and Pain. Hmm. Um, we have it online, where like we outline the full reasoning and the, the mathematical analysis that we used to arrive at these conclusions. Okay. But I mean, essentially, yeah, we we did ask a, a bunch of people. Um, both in the general population and in kind of like the special populations, for example, cluster headache sufferers or kidney stone sufferers, um, to kind of like bring up what other things they also have experienced and essentially rate them and rank them and compare them. And so if you have enough overlap of somebody who's had kidney stones and had a cluster headache then and also had a tension headache, then all of a sudden you you have something that you can use as a, as a Venn diagram with somebody else and then kind of construct this tree. Exactly. And, and you don't even need, you know, all of the conditions being experienced by just one person, <laughs> like because you can chain, right? As long as you have enough data, you can essentially... Uh, the the technique we we call it a, a deference graph analysis it's kind of like okay this person says that this other condition is more painful um and like every two person you know 90 percent of the people who've had both experiences agree in that direction and so you can take that deference as kind of like reliable um and then you take like this whole graph of all of the bad experiences that people have and you look at how are the different what is the flow of deferences and yeah you you essentially see things like yeah, kidney stones and cluster headaches are like way up there uh, relative to other stuff. It's really interesting because that suggests you often hear people be like, well, there's no such thing as an objective rating of pain or suffering. Yeah. And I've always sat around and I've heard people say that. And I'm like, I do not agree with that. <laughs> like I, I do, if, if you think that your your pain at you know like stubbing your toe is equivalent to a cluster headache, that's because you haven't had I a think cluster. What people headache. usually say is they're like, my worst pain is as bad as your worst pain. Objectively, I don't think that's possible. Uh. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not the case, right? Because there's people who there are people who are hyperthymic, for example. Um, we've interviewed a couple of them. Essentially, they they never have a bad day in their life. Um, yeah, it's and it seems to be genetic for for a number of them. Like they're just born that way, and like it would be very cruel to to tell to tell them that like yeah, you know, the, your worst day, which actually was a pretty good day, <laughs> is as bad as the worst day of somebody with depression, right? Which yeah, it's, uh, or like a so like bad stuff. Wait, I just wait, wait, hold on. So like bad stuff happens to them, and they're just like cool. They essentially like one person I interviewed. Um, uh he actually has migraines uh and when he's experiencing a migraine he says yeah it's painful but i'm still enjoying this experience a lot i just would prefer that the migraine was gone <laughs> because then it would be a more pure you know good experience wow this is crazy this is from did you say th thyroid thymic thymic like the thymus. thymus like the yeah Wow, right, so it's I'm like an look into this. That's crazy. Like, uh, the thymus. Is this like synesthesia, something that you're just born with? Uh, it seems like, yeah. <sighs> yeah, I'd like to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I would love, because I would love, we talk about this all the time, right? Because I think that the, there's something about being human, which is about striving for something. And you can ascribe to the discipline where to strive is not the goal. I'm not a person who subscribes to that discipline. I have a podcast. <laughs> I, I have like I'm working towards something, obviously. So I'm striving. 
But the process of striving often hurts, and it seems like, in general, what prevents people from meeting success is the fact that at some point they get to the place where they're like, striving hurts too much. <laughs> and then they stop. And then wherever they stop is is where they land, and life goes on, and it's different. But I think that there is... It would be incredible to be somebody who could experience that and then just be like, but this isn't suffering. This is just striving. Like to experience yeah. pure striving with none of the suffering that's associated with it. Yeah. And so are you in search of offering people pure experiences? <laughs> well, I mean, to some extent, yes. I like, like A, offering people relief from extreme suffering is number one. Second is helping people who are kind of like in a maybe they're not suffering intensely but they are like um suffering just enough so that they are very unproductive to kind of like because that's kind of like a big delta they're like if you go you know the scale goes from minus 10 to plus 10 if you're like maybe on like minus one to plus one like you're still not going to be very productive <laughs> but then if you you know go to like okay i'm three out of 10 or four out of 10, then, okay, that is kind of like super productivity window. And like, if we can take people reliably there, then yes, you know, productivity would skyrocket, I think. Um, and then the, the third one is figuring out how to deliver safe uh, and reliable, ultra blissful experiences, which would be kind of like, yeah, the 10 out of 10, you know, pleasure, pleasure range. And uh, I'm not talking about like, uh, I mean, a lot of people might, might say like, well, then you're just advocating for people to try heroin or, or meth or something like that. But actually, like even those are not as good as what you can obtain either via meditation or with um, other drugs. Like um, the, the one drug that actually seems to maximize consciousness and bliss the absolute most by a very, very large margin is the substance that is called 5-MeO-DMT. Um, and uh, essentially... It is like a profound mystical spiritual experience where like, yeah, the sense of well-being, it's astronomical. I mean, it's like superhuman. Um, if you have a good trip, <laughs> that, and that is the problem because you could also have a bad trip and it actually could be extremely negative. Um, and in our theory, essentially, whether you have a bad trip or, or not has to do with whether you instantiated a state of high consonance or dissonance. So this is actually kind of a pretty tractable thing. Like, for example... Um, putting a person through an LSV uh, session before a 5-MeO DMT experience is, I think, like very likely to strongly bias in the favor of a really positive experience. And that, that's the sort of thing that we, yeah, we would love to be able to offer people. How difficult is it to do this kind of work? Because, I mean, all of these substances, many of the substances that you've talked about, I think all maybe, are highly controlled substances. Like, Oregon has mostly legalized stuff. Are you guys but it's not up? like we can just like walk to the gas station and buy some either. No, give it five years. <laughs> no, no, no. So, so no, I mean, that's uh, totally right. So, um, we ourselves don't actually give uh, substances to people. Um, like, we're a fairly tiny research group. And uh, instead, what do we do? Um, there's like three ways, really. Uh, a is collaborate with other labs who do have the permission to essentially, yeah, administering interesting substances and gathering neuroimaging data. Um, the second one is we have this thing we call the phenomenology club. So essentially, people who are really, really experienced on a particular domain. For example, I know three people completely, you know, completely <laughs> independently of each other all of them tried 5-MeO DMT every day for six months, like 
I don't know why they chose to do that independently, but like that is the case. And <laughs> so we we interview them. Like we have this event like every every couple of weeks. Um, we're like we all gather and like really kind of like go, go very deep into trying to figure out like the structural properties of those experiences and um and figuring out like okay are, are there like patterns or what what is kind of uh, um the, the main effects here um and then the the third one is kind of this uh, setup we call a uh, think tank model where essentially yeah with a wide enough uh network of like you know smart people people who are scientists or researchers um who yeah you know might do some exploration on the side um in a sense like as a as a collective they have like a much much you know greater ability to make sense of these experiences than let's say just an individual researcher or for example like um how it's used nowadays in academia which is you give a substance to a lot of people who have never experienced it uh, and then you ask them to fill a questionnaire which is yeah not necessarily going to actually yeah tell you like new new insights so <laughs> the people from that experimental group did they report uh are they able to bring something back to the rest of the population? Like, can they bring something salient back? Or is this something that someone has to experience for themselves? I think you can bring a lot. I mean, I mean, to some extent, some things have to be experienced to, to be known. Um, but like for their benefit, you know, like for, yeah, like, can you learn something that's transmissible from those experiences? Like become a teacher when you come back? Yeah, something like that. I think so. I mean, there's like one, a couple of examples. There's some famous, fairly famous Buddhist um, teachers who now they're kind of like more freely admitting this, that they actually made a lot of progress through psychedelics. Um, I mean, one person who's like pretty open about this and you can find, find him on YouTube explaining this is uh, Michael Taft, who's like a yeah very well-regarded meditation teacher. Um, and I, you know, I really love his meditation, uh, <laughs> guided meditation YouTube. Um, you know, he, he says that the way he became quote unquote awakened and we can go into what awakening is, um, was through a combination of meditation and then like really serious LSD exploration where essentially he had 700 LSD trips, um, high dose LSD trips. And they kind of like taught, showed him what to look for in the meditation or something like that, or he knew it helped him. Uh, I think you see something like you understand something about the 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 structure of everything. Like, and I, I think that when you this damn word structure is well, just no, so, it just yeah. there there is this the, it, there is this sense that everything is made of one cloth, and there's and you and you come to know that there is a cloth there, and that it has it has texture and appearance and all of it comes together to give you this kind of experience and i imagine that going back through over and over and over again would give you the opportunity to to just look at it very closely because it's so fleeting if you do it once or twice you look at it and you're just like whoa and then it goes away it's gone but if you would do it 700 times you you can just it's almost like a magic eye picture yeah it's that would be a very big component of it. Um, and at a even like more low level, kind of like physiological microscopic level, I think it's a phenomenon of annealing that essentially you're heating up, you know, energizing the nervous system and then like getting it to cool down. Um, and if you do that in a, you know, together with equanimity, you're going to be cooling it down in kind of an equanimity compatible configuration. Um, and I mean, it, it is one of those things that, 
as with meditation, doing it once is not enough. <laughs> you actually need to, you know, do the annealing cycle a bunch of times to actually do more finer and finer um, smoothing of the, the fabric of experience until you get something that is like actually perfectly smooth and it snaps into perfect symmetry. I guess I was also like kind of asking, are these people ex like coming across the same sort of symbolisms and stuff too? Like, are, are they like, oh man, the machine elves told me about the secrets of the universe again. And like, I, cause sometimes I have these dreams where I'm like, I have this amazing realization, but then I wake up and I'm like, oh damn it. I like, what was that? I was just thinking of something like, I just figured something out. And I'm like often left when I wake up with this feeling of like, oh, I just figured something out and I can't remember what it was. It, or, or are people able to like bring that back? I'm sorry to like keep sticking on this. I just am curious if, if there's like, yeah. Well, DMT is kind of special in that like um, DMT in particular is really difficult to bring back. And essentially, yeah, the memories that you form on DMT are very fleeting. Um, but that improves with practice. Uh, that is like the overall takeaway. Like people who get to the level of like having done like 500 or more DMT trips they, they can actually describe everything they experienced. Um, it's kind of like maybe early on they were like too, you know, mind blown by what they were seeing and feeling. But now there's kind of like enough of a repertoire of experience that they can say like, oh yeah, okay, that was kind of like in the third trip and a little bit of the fifth trip combined and they can tell you about it. And um, another very key, key um, piece of information here is that we focus on the phenomenal character, like what the experience feels like as opposed to the meaning or what we might describe as the semantic content. And I think like that's the, the main feeling that we see in psychedelic culture and you know, cultural interpretations of, of uh, exotic states of consciousness is that exactly like the thing that people can you know, relate to others who haven't had the experience is more towards semantic information, right? It's like, oh, I was, you know, I met this alien and they took me to the spaceship and they showed me around. Whereas like from our point of view, that actually doesn't matter very much. The thing that matters way more is like, yes, but you know, what was the, what was the wallpaper symmetry group <laughs> expressed in the texture of the walls of the spaceship? Like, and what was the frequency of vibration of it? And was there impedance matching between the walls? So like, that's the sort of thing. Because you believe that's like at the heart of the healing process that you're really yeah. trying to seek and, and exactly. build technology like, for. Even when a machine elf might show you a technology or something, like if it actually heals you, it will be through a mechanism of annealing, through a mechanism of essentially symmetrifying your field of awareness uh, that provide a kind of a scaffold for connections to be formed in that kind of like very healthy, very energized state. Um, and it, I mean, it bears, bears to be said that like, if you have a very unpleasant DMT experience or LSD experience, it may actually anneal an erotic state of consciousness. Oh no, that's, that's, a, that sounds terrifying. That sounds freaking yeah. terrifying. Well, that's why set and setting is important, right? People talk about this. And you said that there is this necessity to create an environment that, that encourages it to be a good experience because when you start mucking around in the brain, you have basically no guarantee that you're 100% of the time going to hit that target that you won't hit. It's just, but I think that that's the case with a lot of experiences. Anything that you do changes you, right? And so if you're doing it through this external stimulation form or you're doing it because you've just made a choice, is it really different? Yeah, I wonder if it's like, if it's, uh, I wonder if there's like levels to this. Like if DMT is like 
to it's like almost a boss fight and if you have no psychedelic experience if it's just like completely unadvisable or or if or is it not like that at all where like people who've never don't have any psychedelic experience can also have good productive experiences on these really intense substances uh, i think i think i think the mindset of uh, building up to it is the right one um and i would say for like not not only between substances but also like doses and like um if you try dmt uh i'm, I'm not you know advocating that anybody does but like if, if you do like I, I actually do recommend like try one milligram then try two then try three and then four and then five and like really go slowly because i mean a every single dose is fascinating like there's no no reason to jump into something externally bizarre if already at a small dose there's actually quite a lot of like mysterious things going on um i think that's good advice for any psychedelics too by the way i mean some people yeah. some people have like the most what what would we say can we call weed like the most uh the most innocuous psychedelic substance but i mean it can be super super bad experience for some people right i mean there's this uh yeah, we, yeah there's this hilar- <laughs> hilarious uh curb your enthusiasm with uh where larry david takes a like a hit of this joint and just goes in the bathroom and stares at himself in the mirror for like five minutes and just hates himself you know and it's like it's like yeah well it doesn't have to be a really strong substance to you know really put you in a place that you're not used to being in and no 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 and uh and i would say there is definitely a scale between substances i mean i would say yeah weed is on the gentle side except you know high doses it can get really crazy but it is more on the gentle side then i would probably place like phenethylamines like 2cb and um you know mescaline and things like that then the thing is like LSD and psilocybin, then DMT. So like, yeah, probably DMT is kind of a boss fight here. But then there's a wrinkle because there's also 5-MeO DMT. And 5-MeO DMT is actually so extreme. Oh, <laughs> like, this is like a special version of DMT. I'm sorry, I didn't yeah. totally understand. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, a, it's it's its own thing. And like the consistently, you know, if you have like a strong 5-MeO DMT experience, what people report is absolutely no other psychedelic experience I see. Oh like my just goodness. Different I see. category yeah. okay <laughs> That's fascinating and so for the for for the reducing of unnecessary suffering this is a project that attempts to take this tech this everything that you've learned in the study and with understanding these brain states and to be able to lead people to minimize negative states which are which we kind of haven't talked about that, right? We've talked about the way that you can create these positive states. And is that just a side effect of, is minimizing negativity just a side effect of working on the positive? No, no, no. The, in, in fact, some of the solutions for eliminating negative extremes are not very interesting. I mean, they're not very interesting, but they're like very really effective. And like, that is actually what matters there. And that's why we call them um, pragmatic solutions for extreme suffering, that they are actually not very flashy, but it's just like, you know, somebody has to do it. <laughs> um, to give you an example, uh, uh, kidney stones is like one of the things that came up as kind of like, okay, one of the extreme very versions of suffering. Um, and they're extremely common. And like, probably, you know, they add up a huge amount of pain to the, you know, the world's reservoir of suffering. Um, and there's like some fancy ways of kind of like tackling it, you know, uh, shockwave, lithotropy like where you essentially yeah kind of like break it down directly that would be kind of like yeah fancy interesting way but um there's actually uh, like what we are assembling right now is like evidence that these um 
South American plant called uh, Shanka Piedra. Um, it's not only effective at getting rid of kidney stones, but more than that, it seems to be really effective at preventing kidney stones. And I think like that is where probably the biggest bang for the buck will be, where essentially, oh, I have it right here, <laughs> where you essentially might take one of these like every week or every month. And then, uh, you know, when you're like 20 years old, you start, and then you will just never have any kidney stone uh, ever in your life. And it will be just so incredibly cheap. I mean, essentially, we're talking about something like less than $5 per person per year, which just by, you know, medical costs alone is already saving a huge amount of money because, you know, going to the hospital and get kidney stone procedures is very, very costly. Not to speak of all the pain that would be prevented. So uh, that's, that's one. I mean, we have a portfolio of things that we actually have kind of like stumbled upon, but that really nobody is pursuing. So uh, our move here is kind of like an incubator move. I mean, right now we are at the stage of building up the case for it, kind of like giving talks and publishing articles about this paradigm, like, hey, like pain is real. <laughs> There's actually levels of pain. Um, and very likely most of the suffering comes from a few experiences. And here's the set of like most promising interventions we have. And then actually, yeah, founding companies for, for all of them, uh, I think is going to be the, the way to go. Very cool. And so that, I guess, leaves us just with the question of ultimate, of ultra bliss. Like, so if you can raise the, the baseline, how do you, how do you get, because it sounds like the technology that you've described to this point, I don't want to say that it's expensive, but it's not. I can't imagine it being sold, you know, for 20 bucks somewhere. No, no, the, the full setup is very likely, you know, in the $1,000 range. And it's, it's going to be difficult to bring it like a lot lower than that. Maybe, maybe $500 could be, could be the, the minimum. Could there be like um, shared resources somehow? Yeah, like the yeah. our YMCA has uh, it has hydro massage beds, and there's three of them, and they're very unwieldy and awkward. But I can imagine them having a room of uh, like the ultra bliss room. <laughs> you know, for fifteen dollars exactly. a month, you can get yeah. some bliss. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a model that we we've been exploring. Um, yeah, because direct to consumer, I don't think it's going to work uh, for, for for the reasons you point out. Uh, yeah, the the ultra blissful experiences uh, would be more. So there is five MEO DMT. Uh, I, I I would put like MDMA kind of like over there as well. Um, MDMA is like very unreliable, unfortunately, because you get used to it. Like tolerance to it is super super strong. So you can only really have something like ten MDMA trips because after after that your brain essentially doesn't respond to it in the same way. Um, suggesting neuro neurotoxicity. So it's not it's not good for you <laughs> in that sense. Uh, but uh but we 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 do suspect um and also based on some preliminary data that there's actually like mdma analogs that produce the same feeling but are not neurotoxic and yeah we know several people working on that um but then the way in which it actually connects the most with the light sound and body vibration is in terms of accelerating meditation progress like that is probably where like you know the the bulk of being able to access ultra blissful states is, um, and also because we, yeah, we know people who are quote unquote awakened. I mean, there's kind of the, yeah, there, there probably could be a, a whole podcast of like de demystifying awakening. We should, we, we yeah. should do that. I would, I would like that. <laughs> and uh, if you're curious, I can uh, put you in, in touch with uh, people that I, I think are meet, meet the mark. Um, 
I mean, there's like very technical descriptions of like what it means um, depending on the tradition. But the, the one that I follow the most is uh, in Buddhism, um, there's a model of uh, the fourth path. So essentially people who achieve like fourth, fourth path where essentially they don't experience fear anymore. They're not afraid of dying. They're not afraid. Of, and, and also um, they're able to not translate pain into suffering. Like essentially that, that equation uh, becomes really easy for them. Like they can experience tremendous pain, but it doesn't manifest as like further trauma or neuroticism. Um, and that is really radical. I mean, like talking to a couple of people who are in that state, they say that their moment to moment everyday life since they experience fourth path is better than candy flipping. Like they're at a much better state than, you know, even combining LSD and MDMA and having a great trip. Their moment to moment just naturally is just super well, super elevated well-being, and you know it may take something like five thousand hours or ten thousand hours of intense meditation to get there. But I think that with something like the light, sound, and body vibration, you know, we might be able to cut that down to you know five hundred hours <laughs> or something like that, because you also have kind of the uh, harmonization coming from from the the setup as well. If you don't experience fear, doesn't like would you like not jump out of the way if a tiger came out of the, around the corner and? No, no, no. They, they they definitely experience like functional fear. It's just that it doesn't, they might describe it as it doesn't get to their core. Like there's nothing that gets affected by it. Like they're not, they're not, they don't experience anything beyond like, 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 yeah, like I need to move away from the tiger. It's not, oh my God, my, I can't believe that happened. I can't believe there was a tiger just now, (laughs) that kind of thing. Exactly. That'd be pretty cool. It is, it is kind of aspirational to. I mean, what's really annoying is like, almost everything that i'm afraid of never happens like that's that's my experience with fear like almost everything and so i i can imagine being able to train that if you could actually train some distance between the fear and what you make of it or something like that. i think that's what meditation does. yeah probably probably <laughs> oh, oh man this has been a fantastic conversation yeah. i think that we are we too no, we're an hour and a half. I thought we were two and a half hours in. I was like, time flies. No, um, I would love to have you back again and talk about awakening and all of the other things that, that you see and find. And it's been, it's been very, very interesting. Totally. No, it's been, it's been great. Thank you so much for, for inviting me. It's very much our pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot, Andres.